Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We're advantaged at Queen Victoria Street to have with us Andreas Oderman, Allianz Global Investors Chief Executive Officer, and David Harrell, managing a small pot of money at Harris Associates in Chicago as well. And we bring forward the great debate of the last 20 years, active and passive investment. Uh, Andreas, let me go to you first. Uh, uh, Ms. Johnson over at Fidelity and others have decided, I guess it's a price war on ETF fees. Does this have critical mass? Are we going to start seeing every shop offering out vanilla management at a vanilla zero uh, fee? I don't know about vanilla zero fee, uh, but certainly, as you probably remember, we, we were uh, very early in terms of launching um, in the UK and also in the US uh, in, the term, in the context of fulcrum fees, very low base fee uh, uh, funds with a performance fee attached. And that's something we've been offering in institutional space for many, many years and it's been very successfully taken up by our clients. So, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's the, the reality is that uh, the price of beta in, in, for most beta streams has come down significantly with the advent of passive ETFs. And I think the response of active managers that want to survive need to be to, 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 to acknowledge that and, and um, f figure out what that means. And of course it means that we need to earn our keep by aligning ourselves with client interests, which is through performance fees. David, how is this going to end up? We've been talking about it for years. You've been a staunch defender of value of buying uh, bank stocks, et cetera, when shares are on sale. You sound like Sir John Templeton uh, at times here. How is this going to end up, this, this active and passive debate? Where are we going to be in 2025? There will always be this debate, and I think it's actually a strong passive sector is actually a necessary, a necessity for active investors because passive investing implies that you're buying things because they're in an index, and the more it goes up, the bigger space it occupies in the index, you buy more. This is what I would call inefficient pricing of assets. And as an active investor, we need inefficiency to exploit, to outperform over the medium and long term. It may hurt us in in the short term. But if we want to perform in the medium and long term, we need market inefficiency. We need mispricing of assets. And if passive investing causes more mispricing of assets, then that's good for us. So the problem is that we keep shrinking and they keep getting larger, which means the opportunity set for the remaining active investors actually increases. So as long as you have the staying power and the discipline to hang in there, I think it will be good for active investors. But, you know, and, and the, the relative slices of the pie between active and passive will keep moving, I imagine, maybe still slowly towards passive. But for, for me as an active investor, I'm thankful every morning that there are passive investors out there. <clears throat> Andreas, talk to me a little bit about outflows. Are we going to see more outflows in 2019? Is there a correlation between volatility in the markets and people actually deciding to, to get their money out? 
Uh, not necessarily. I think um, the, the outflows that we saw primarily in Q4 ac across the board were caused by, you know, specific um, market events and, and you know, I, I, we don't anticipate that continuing in 2019 now that the central banks globally have sort of taken the, the you know, the, the foot of the brake a little bit. So I think uh, as the year progresses, and Tom mentioned this earlier, the, the, the challenge of end investors with real negative interest rates, uh, they're going to have to start taking risk again in order to get those returns. And I think that's going to favor a slow, steady return, um, you know, of, of fund flows across the board. Are you expecting more volatility in, in the markets? I, mean, I know the, the fourth quarter was a bit rough. What happens for the rest of the year? I mean, the fourth quarter of 2018 was extremely strange, and not just because of the price movement, but the outflows and the, I would say dislocation in prices, prices that were completely divorced from reality. Now, of course, it will come back at some point. Um, who knows when? But again, even though it's painful as you go through it, it's actually good for an active investor because it enables you. It's basically the raw material which you could position your portfolios when you see emotional trading and price movement that is not reflective of reality. Andre, it will come back. Andreas, you have been just brilliant on the mergers and on the combinations that we've seen in asset management. Does that just extend this year as we go into second, third, and fourth quarter? Strategic planning, is the mating of the industry going to continue? I think it will continue and I think it will accelerate. We've seen a, a world of pain, uh, as I've mentioned before, in terms of, uh, in terms of you know, the, the stresses that many traditional asset managers are facing with their hybrid models. And I'm not quite sure, do I focus on a technology-led model? Do I focus on a distribution-led model? Do I, do I go active or passive? Um, I, think, I think a lot of owners of asset managers are going to have a second look at, at their businesses and decide they needed to either sell it or, or, or merge it away. Way, and I think it's going to accelerate in 2019. Just allow me one further comment on the active-passive debate that we just had. Uh, it dismays me sometimes that the passive-active debate is so much focused on security selection. Uh, as we all know, and I'm sure David would agree with that, many of our clients have uh, concerns beyond that. Uh, you know, they want to know wh when to buy a particular currency exposure or when to hedge it. They want to know when to get market exposure or reduce market exposure. They want to know which asset classes to invest in uh, or which regions. Now, you can't do that in a passive manner. All of these are active considerations. So I think the active-passive debate is unfortunately too focused on security selection where it's clearly an issue. It's also an issue of pricing, but there's much more to the asset management industry than, than just security selection. Do you want to respond to that? I mean, it, it is, I guess we do focus on kind of, on, you know, equity analysis, but it, it, it is much bigger than that. Yeah. I mean, it is much bigger than that, especially if you're a, a retirement plan. You have to have a diversified plan. You have to have assets that can uh, deliver return to fund your liabilities. And so you have to look at it. I mean, I, from my perspective, I, I'm just providing a service to that person who wants you know, an active value-oriented global investor. That's my job. But if I was running a big pool of money, I certainly would take some of me, take some of them, take some of them. You have to be diversified, and you have to protect your ability to fund liabilities, first and foremost. All right. So thank you both. Uh, David Harrow there of Harris Associates, where he's the Chief Investment Officer, and Andreas Uterman, Allianz Global Investors, CEO.
Right now with us on the political battle, Philippe Reines, who worked with Secretary Clinton and uh, was boisterous uh, during the Clinton campaign where others may be finesse and all. He was one of the great defenders of Secretary uh, Clinton against this, that, and the other thing. Do you expect the same boisterousness this time, Philippe? Are we going to have a, a hugely verbal and physical campaign, or could it even be worse than 2016? Um. In the primaries, I, you know, I think boisterous is a is not such a terrible thing. Uh, we want a lively debate. Yeah. I think as long as there's no, you know, violence, that's what the primaries are for. And whoever comes right. out of it will be stronger. What's interesting about it's this? It's more of a cage match this year, given how many there are. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll go with that. But what's fascinating to me is you had the, sort of the Clinton era and the Obama era. And I tell those younger that I remember a Democratic Party that was normally more fractious across a wide span of history than the Republicans. Do you agree with that? I think so. I, I, I think... Um... I do. I think the Republican Party historically has probably been a little bit more monolithic, especially when they were mostly concerned with social issues, whether it was uh, pro-life or uh, anti-gun control. I think that shifted a little bit as it's become less about social values, Mm -hmm. more about economics. Um, And I think you can see the split within the Republican Party. Personally, I think the Republican Party is a dead party walking, given what has happened since 2010, and particularly in 2016. Well, this is important, and let's look at that from you as a Democratic perspective. The Republican Party of 2020 or 2018 in reality, how different is it from 2010? I would suggest it is substantially different in makeup, particularly on Capitol Hill, than it was only six years ago. You're 100% right. It's, um, you know, it's a shell of its former self. And I I don't know if that's better or worse, but I don't think that they themselves, they being at least the establishment Republicans and the leaders, uh, like you said, in Congress, I don't think they've come to grips with that. And I don't think they know where it goes. I think there's a, a definitely sizable bunch of them that's delusional and think they just have to ride out the Trump era and things will revert back. That doesn't seem likely. Um, You know, it's the two-party system was interesting in 2016. Hillary Clinton ran against someone who had previously been, you know, independent, was a self-described socialist. And Donald Trump had switched parties seven times. I mean, you know, you've had presidents who have shifted parties, like even Ronald Reagan, but not seven times. And he's done it not just Republican, Democrat. He's done it Reform Party, independent. So, you know, I think 20 years from now, we might be having a conversation where this was a moment in time that the Republican Party certain fractured and maybe the two-party system. What about the Democrats, Philly? Because there are many people that might think that party's fractured as well and, and might essentially break too. I don't think so. I mean, I, I know there's, uh, you know, there's an appealing narrative that we like to fight. I, I think we're kind of the family that... Uh, on Thanksgiving sort of does go at each other, but then hug it out. And it's a healthy debate. I think particularly this year, the Democratic Party will end up incredibly unified with one goal, which is to oust Donald Trump. And I think we saw it last year, where even though many of the policy debates were going on, we took over the House. Well, that's the goal. What's the message? 
because the policy debate in the midterms was quite a centrist message. The policy debate so far from the Democrats is way out on the left, Philippe. Do you expect that to come in and why? I, I, you know, I really don't know. I, I, I think, um, again, I think the debate is good. I mean, we're starting from a point where you believe everyone should have health care. If you are debating whether or not that's Medicare for all, some version of Obamacare, that's really not um, – it's obviously important, but we're going to end up in the right places. And it's the disparity and the distinction between those beliefs and the Republican Party that people are going to rally around. Yeah. Um, Phil, Philippe uh, Rain is with us uh, as we talk about politics. He represented Secretary Clinton at the State Department and uh, worked on her campaign as well. Philippe, the Democrats in the middle, do they just wait out this burst of democratic socialism or socialism or whatever you want to call it? Do they wait it out or do they rebut it? Uh, in terms of the candidates? or Yeah, just candidates. In terms of the candidates, there really might not be a lane, um, to be honest. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say it, but someone like Mayor Bloomberg, who I personally love and voted for as a New Yorker multiple times, it's he's someone who I personally agree with more than most. Uh, and it's hard to have that kind of message right now. But that's not so different. I mean, typically you have it All on right. both parties where the primary voters are the most energetic in the Democratic Party, whether it's 2020, 2016, particularly right. 20, 2008, it's a very, very left excited party. In 2007 and eight, it was Iraq. And now it's a variety of things that obviously getting rid of Trump is not just, you know, the only oh policy but you have to do that to enact these policies i don't know it's it's hard to see um i don't know how much you can veer from the left from the hard left but that's not socialism i mean not to dance on the head of a pin um but i think there's a difference between a general purity test on every issue and also look it has a secondary effect you know bernie sanders jumped in yesterday he obviously had tremendous energy in 2016. He had an eye-popping overnight fundraising. Right. But in 2016, it was a binary choice. If you yeah. want to call Hillary Clinton a centrist or a moderate, if you didn't like her, you went to Bernie. If you didn't like the Bernie, you went to Hillary. Now, you know, if you listen to the Bernie campaign and the Bernie supporters, they are very proud that yeah. they have pulled the party to where they are. There's a secondary effect to that in that you don't have to choose Bernie to get those policies. So you have three or four people. You can choose that approach yeah. and still debate well, between personalities. I mean, it's you've got to play where there are three understudies in every lane, which right. is good, but it, it doesn't mean anyone owns the lane. Yeah, we're going to have to leave it there. Philippe Reynas, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Formerly working with Secretary Clinton. And as he mentions Mayor Bloomberg, we should mention that Michael Bloomberg is uh, a principal owner of uh, Bloomberg LP and, of course, uh, Bloomberg Television and Radio. This is, if you're on Global Wall Street, is this, the interview this of the day? is a conversation. <laughs> it is. This is the interview of the day because this is about, this is going to push aside all of the baloney, the BS about, about 
the hedge fund business. At Credit Suisse, they have a jewel. His name is Mark Connors, uh, Global Head of Portfolio and Risk Advisory, which is a fancy name for he writes the smartest letter on hedge funds in the business as well. Wonderful to have you here. We get a huge response when you're on. Is the concept of 2 and 20 a 2% fee and 20% of what's left over? Is that concept dead for hedge funds? It's it's dead. It is, uh, it's gone away for a, a fair amount of hedge funds. So there's something that we wrote called the vital few. So there's some folks who can still do it, and maybe their margins are even higher than that. So what's happened is we talk about distributions, and you know I know there's a that jingle word you have. You, we can't do fancy words on the no, on you the, can on the program once in a while where a bell rings. Yeah, go, right? do the jargon. Okay, go ahead. give us so need to do that. the Pareto principle, eighty twenty. Oh, Uh-oh. very yes. cool. So people, there's a segmentation where as markets have gotten harder, there right. are only a few who are making that money and they're doing it. John's got like eight questions. Let me get one more in here. Is most of the agony in hedge funds because they're less diversified? Um, I think, no, the agony was that there was no alpha um, for many people because there's less liquidity. And there's what we call untradable volatility. So people love vol. They say, where's the vol? Where's that dispersion? Where's, where's that- the movement in the market that we can prosper from? That we can, right, monetize. Where is it? And what happens is it comes in moments like the Swiss Euro. It comes in moments like June 8th trade talks. And it comes in moments like uh, Fed um, October 3rd. And they can't trade it. And all they do is take a mark and there's no liquidity. So they wake up with a 2% gain and then they go to bed with a 2% loss. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's brutal. We de-risked aggressively in December. Trying to de- gauge- De-risk is not jargon on Bloomberg. <laughs> trying, trying to gauge how much we have re-risked through the new year. From the people you speak to, from the numbers you see, any evidence that we have? No, so this is, this is in, in our 10 years of data, we've never seen a run in the market where the hedge funds have not participated. This is the biggest gap wow. between a, what is it, a 15% move off the bottom, of, you know, Christmas Eve bottom, and yeah. hedge funds are still lying in wait. We are 31, I, I did the math today, we're 31% round trip from the first week of December down and back up, basically 15 plus 15. It's a huge move. So what's holding them back? Um, in speaking to them, they're not really showing their cards, to be honest, about why. Um, what they're doing is they're renting the market. So hedge funds play with two things. They play with a gross exposure, longs and shorts, called a footprint, and they make money on both sides. That's their game. Or they can do it with their net, the tilt. So they're net long and they're renting. They are a low, small footprint, but they're covering shorts, like you see the semis run, and they're getting longer, smaller amounts. So they're, as we say, renting. They're not convicted that this has duration. Does this explain some of the tension we see between the sovereign debt market, which it has, treasury yields rolling over, investors clamoring for duration because they don't believe in the global growth story, the tension between that and what we see in risk assets, does this explain some of that? The sentiment really hasn't recovered yet? A hundred percent. And it almost is too tight a narrative to to believe because it fits so well. It's like yields have set the highs and they're coming in because there's a defensive posture. People are not constructive on global growth right now. I want to go back to diversification because, uh, you, know, you know, we have these major head funds, that, you know, like, like six guys get all the ink. I mean, that's basically the way it is. And as you know, everything else out there 
is it an under-diversified asset class? And does that mean that every three years, whatever hedge fund you own, you're going to blow up by definition? So I would, I would say that there are some people who really have a structural advantage. They're, they're faster. They're, they have a tight team. They have a through-and-through model where they can um, move faster. I, I, I think that is the case. So structurally, there's just a better teams out there. There's just, that's just a fact. I mean, take a, uh, and a good friend of the show and someone I did wonderful work with, John Bogelund, Cliff Asnes at AQR. I mean, he's doing a quant kind of thing, a factor-based kind of thing. And even he struggled last year with one of his funds. It was a, a significant double-digit loss for someone as bright as Cliff Asnes. For Mark Connors at Credit Suisse, what does it signal when someone like Mr. Asnes stumbles? Um, so without speaking about specific clients, you, I understand that, you're yes. dead on that some factor investing quote didn't work. And, and what we saw, we, we called it um, um, a matter of trust. When things go wrong, you buy sovereign bonds. When things go wrong, you buy gold. Well, in Q4, those things didn't work. There was something amiss. Yeah. So historical price patterns didn't happen. And back to your point, Jonathan, about sovereign debt. We think that that parachute didn't open for a reason, and we're, we're, I think people are still wondering why. Mark Connors, always great to catch up with you to get an, yeah. a window into the, into the world of hedge funds. want to bring you some breaking news just very quickly. It's another exit at Tesla. The stock is down by a little more than 1% in the pre-market, losing its general counsel two months after hiring him, Tom. So the general wow, counsel, I did not know that. The general counsel that in the is leaving... Uh, in a statement, he looks forward to returning to Washington to continue his work with Tesla in an outside counsel role, as in the past. People familiar with the matter said he found that Tesla wasn't the right cultural fit. That That's story, the actual language in the headline. That story just dropping across the board. It's like you and me. We mean, people understand you and me. There's no you cultural and I, fit. You know. The wrong cultural fit. <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, this is part of a wider story with a series of high-profile exits at the company. Don't want to delve deep into the realm of speculation, but it's the optics of this that I think signals uh, yeah. a little bit of negativity. So the stock down by about 1.35%. I don't think it's necessarily dramatic. just plays into a much wider story about Tesla's seemingly inability to keep hold of some senior names after they've hired them. Yeah, uh, so sorry. just a couple of months after hiring the, uh, the general counsel, he leaves, Tom. I'm looking at the bonds, and uh, you know, you, I, I watch the bonds. Should say uh, this is according well, to, the, to the Wall Street Journal. So this is yeah. the Wall Street Journal's reporting. Well, headline flow out there, and again, the UBS fine in France uh, earlier uh, as well. Futures at negative three, Dow futures negative uh, 33. And again, I'm watching that yield. Germany now solid under 0.109%, John, in the uh, Germany 10-year yield. I'm looking at a global equity market that continues to do well. The Hang Seng overnight up by 1%. In China, equities a little bit firmer. Yeah, in Japan, too. In Europe... <laughs> They're okay. Stocks are higher. Futures here are a little soggy, and you just wonder about that. You, you, you wonder uh, uh, the way we recovered yesterday, and as you said earlier, it's a grind higher. As we drift towards the Federal Reserve minutes that come out at 2 p.m. Yeah. Eastern, a huge Federal Reserve retreat in January, formalized in the statement, communicated by right. the chairman in the news conference, and we'll get the color yeah. from the minutes a little bit later. I mean, Mark Connors at Credit Suisse still with us. I mean, as you say, the, the hedge funds have not participated in this lift, right? What will it take for them to participate? Um, I, I think that if when we get we, we're through earnings, as we start to get uh, a little bit of a window on how this this next quarter of earnings yeah. will happen, I think you'll see engagement. So pre-announcements 
that's going to be the next window. Okay. Yeah. Mark Connors, thank you so much. For thank purposes. you, Mark. Don't be a stranger. Thanks. It's really, really. I'd like to get back to first principle investment work, and you can do that with Kate Warren, uh, a CFA with Edward Jones at Research, and importantly, she's been there through a few cycles. Kate, let us start uh, with the idea of the percentage of people that really don't have a memory back past 2007. Is that overplayed? I mean, in the day-to-day grind of Edward Jones, do a lot of people remember normal markets, or is that just gone by the wayside? Well, I think uh, it's a combination that they remember the 2008 downturn and worry that that will happen again. And they probably don't have much of a memory of normal markets before that. So I think you're correct. But I do think that the solid, strong rebound we've seen since uh, the market started to recover in 2009 has, uh, on the other side, made investors sort of of two minds, where they're worried about a severe downturn, but they also have very high expectations for returns. Yeah. And that's an interesting combination. That's that's right where I wanted to go, and you've got the mathiness to do this. We talk about a single-digit world. What's the actuarial assumption of our near retirees right now? My answer is it's it's double-digit or a high single-digit, and it ought to be set lower. Am I right? Uh, You're absolutely correct, and I think that's because everyone has what's referred to uh, as recency bias, or more precisely, if the returns have been double-digit over the last few years, then people tend to expect that they will continue uh, high like that. Now, obviously, last year was a year of declines, but you still go back and you average over the last few years, and the returns are higher than they're likely to be over the next few years as we get back into an environment where we're more likely to see cycles and where interest rates are a bit higher and some of the things that have helped to propel markets uh, to rise over the last few years aren't quite as strong. So, Kate, one of the characteristics of the recent markets has been volatility, just you know, getting whipsawed in December and then rallying back here in the early in 2019. What do you think is driving this volatility, and is this something that investors just have to get used to? Yes, I think this is sort of a return to more normal volatility. So with Tom's question about do investors remember, no, we also had some very low volatility years, and I think investors sort of forgot how volatile normal markets are. So in answer to your question, yes, I think investors have to get used to more normal volatility. I think we're still in the bull market, but as you get later in the bull market cycle with rising interest rates and a little less uh, in the way of uh, tailwinds, I think we'll see more volatility ahead. At the same time, though, the fundamentals are still positive. We've got modest economic growth and modest earnings growth, and the rest of the world actually looks more attractive than the U.S. right now. So I think investors really need to be looking for the opportunities rather than worrying so much about the higher volatility. So that leads me to the next question. The obvious question is, where do you see opportunities in the market these days, given the volatility? Well, right now, we still think uh, U.S. stocks uh, have uh, more room to rebound. The pullback in December probably gave the bull market more fuel because it lowered valuations. And right now, price earnings ratio on the S&P 500 is really near its five-year average. So that says stocks aren't as expensive as they were back last fall. But we actually think the opportunities are more outside the U.S. And the reason is investors have become so pessimistic about growth in the rest of the world, with China providing more 
stimulus with Europe looking like it may stabilize. The valuations are more attractive, and we actually think that's the place to be putting money right now to add and improve the diversification of a domestic portfolio. What about emerging markets? Interview after interview, the ebb and the flow, the challenges of international in 2018, well, February of last year, October of last year, December of last year. Do you have the courage to say to somebody at a kitchen table across all of America, EM is the place to be? Well, I wouldn't quite say EM is the place to be, but I would say, Tom, that uh, if you're an, an investor who owns some U.S. stocks, some U.S. bonds, yeah. and some developed market, you want to be adding emerging markets. And the reason is that, again, the pessimism is high related to emerging yes. markets. With China stabilizing its economy, we do think they have the tools to do that. That's a positive for emerging markets. And in addition, many other countries are also taking stimulative policies. So when you think about it, we've all heard right. that, you know, basically the Federal Reserve is key to the outlook <clears throat> for this year in the U.S. That's true in the rest of the world. We just don't pay quite as much attention to what central banks are doing there. And if the dollar doesn't continue to strengthen, that's actually a positive for in investments in emerging markets. Very good. Kate Warren, thank you so much with Edward Jones. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.